Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. If you uh, have a Bible, I want you to get to Acts chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, we are in the third week of our fall series going through the book of Acts. We're going to be in this book up to Thanksgiving, and then we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving and Advent together, and then we'll be back in it for a few weeks on the other side in the new year. And so we're going to spend a good amount of time in this book, and, and our mission statement, as it were, as we're going through this, is that this is a book that's written by a medical doctor whose name is Luke to a friend of his whose name is Theophilus. And Theophilus is a new believer and somebody who is needing some certification, some verification around his new beliefs. And Luke writes him two letters. One is the Gospel of Luke, and the other is the book of Acts. And he writes it to him so that he can be certain of the things that he has been taught. So he can be certain of who Jesus is. So he can be certain that both intellectually, emotionally, experientially, uh, Christianity is viable. And what's interesting about this is that Luke, an educated man, says to Theophilus, an educated man, if you want to love Jesus more, the way you can learn to do that is by looking at the church. And we've said the last couple weeks that that is a pretty convicting idea because we all know people who they look at the church and they want nothing to do with Jesus because of the church. Luke looks at the church and says, I'm entrusting the story of the church to my friend and I know that if he looks at the church, he'll see Jesus. And so our prayer is that as we go through this book, God will make us more like that kind of church. That people who have been hurt by the church, people who have questions, who have doubts, uh, can come to DR, find a safe, healthy, gospel, grace-filled community. And maybe it won't answer all of their questions, but maybe it will create some other and uh, good questions. So that's what we're shooting for as we go through this and trusting that God, by His Holy Spirit, will accomplish. I'm going to have you stand with me. We're going to read through our text today, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And then I'm going to pray, and then we will get to it. Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. So those who received His Word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, we uh, are coming to you by your grace, through your Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, and saying, God, that we, uh, we understand that in many ways the church has failed to mimic, failed to certify the claims of Jesus. And God, we're wanting to repent of that and just in open hand and an open heart say, God, make us the church that you want us to be. And so as we enter our third week, we're continuing to ask that, continuing to trust that. God, I know 
There are lots of people who call Damascus Road home who love you and want to be used by you. And so we're, we're just coming uh, in full dependence, in full humility, praying and planning on you acting, God, trusting that your power is going to accomplish these things. And so, God, today, as we look at this infant church, would you teach us, would you encourage us, would you challenge us, would you grow us into the image and likeness of Jesus for your glory and for our joy? And as people said, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Outside of God saving me, uh, I've had an experience that is probably the most surreal probably the most transcendent, the most significant, and it's happened to me three times. That event was that I got to be in the room when my wife gave birth to all of our kids. Now, whenever I, pre having uh, been in the room, thought of being in the room, I always kind of pictured it like a Hollywood movie. And in the, in the movies, the lady who has makeup on and her hair done is just kind of laying and sipping a margarita, maybe not the margarita, but, uh, and there's, there's a sheet, and after like a ooh, ah, eat, out from the sheet comes like a year and a half year old baby with a full head of hair and a smile on his face, right? And, and, uh, and that baby doesn't poop and doesn't cry and doesn't throw up, and, and uh, I thought, you know, I, I think I, I can do that. Um, if you haven't had kids yet, just don't listen to the next 30 seconds. I don't want to steal it from you, okay? Uh, it's nothing like that. Nothing. Uh, giving birth is, is, is strenuous, is, is painful, uh, is messy, is quiet and loud. Is, uh, it's labor. That's why it's called labor. Lots of times whenever people read the book of Acts, they kind of get the impression that the early church was like the Hollywood version of giving birth to a baby. Like, little of this, little of that, margarita, sheet, year-and-a-half-year-old baby who doesn't poop, burp, stink, fart, whatever, okay? I just got all of the inappropriate words out of the way in the first minute and a half. <laughs> it's, uh, it was painful, and it was messy, and it was bloody, and it was strenuous, and it was labor, and yet out of that came something beautiful and something, uh, in some sense, pure, and we see that birth take place at the end of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost has happened. Jesus has ascended back to the Father, commissioned his people, told them to go back to Jerusalem. They prayed, they planned, and the Spirit shows up. And when the Spirit shows up, a great missional act of God occurs. In response to that, Peter stands up and gives a warm embrace of a message that goes like this. You guys are murderers. You need to repent and be baptized. Let's pray. And 3,000 people, cut to the heart, become followers of Jesus. And so the beginning of the New Testament church, and the reason that I say the New Testament church is because this isn't the first church in the Bible. It's just the New Testament church, the new covenant out of Jesus' blood. God has always had a people, a covenant people. But we see this birth occur we see that it goes from probably 120 overwhelmed followers of Jesus to literally, in about the span of an hour, a church of 3,000 people. And what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is five characteristics of that church that make it what it is. And what you'll see about the Bible is that lots of times we try to take the descriptives out of 
acts and we try to make them prescriptive. God is not necessarily interested with the models of church. He's interested with the heart, the worship, and the attitudes of church. And you're going to see all different kinds of models and all different kinds of movements in the book of Acts. But what is a mainstay is the things that they loved, the things that they focused on. And so my hope today is that as we look through this, we're going to be able to look at it through two lens. One is through the individual lens. The reality of it is, guys, that if you call Damascus Road home, you are a part and parcel of its health. In other words, how healthy you are goes directly to how healthy we are. And so whenever we hear from God, we want to hear from it, from him, in the lens of God, what do you want to do with me? But the what do you want to do with me always goes to the blessing and benefit of us. And so my prayer is that as we go down through these characteristics, that you will have the courage to kind of view this like a coaching session. I've had lots of good coaches, both sport coaches and spiritual coaches, and they ask good questions, and they pry and poke and prod, and they make space for the Spirit to be at work. My intent today is to do that for you, for the blessing of us. The other part is that I pray that the Spirit pokes and prods and pries so that space can be made for him to empower this church to change it into what he wants it to be. And so I'm going to ask you to take good notes. I'm going to ask you to uh, be ready to process them, to pray over them, and to say, God, where your people do whatever you will with us. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we see the first kind of tone setter, not the first characteristic, but the first tone setter. And it actually gets said twice about this group of people. The first tone that I want you to see is that they were together. The words that the scripture uses is day by day. The characteristics of the first church is that they didn't fit church into their calendar. They believed that they were the church and that the rhythms that made them the church dictated their day by day. And you see right away that we have a little bit of divergence. Now some of that divergence is cultural. Some of that divergence is that it's 2014 and this is this and that was that. But some of it is also principled and values and a misunderstanding on our part that church is somewhere that you go on a certain predetermined time versus something that you are that dictates what you do day by day. These five things that we're going to see the early church doing, they did it because they were it. They didn't do it because it was scheduled, because it was necessarily planned, because it was the right or wrong thing to do. It was a manifestation of their values. And listen to me, what you do day by day is a manifestation of your values. What I do day by day is a manifestation of my values. And so when we see the early church being characterized in five ways, the way that we characterize them is by looking at what they do because of who they are on a daily basis. That's the tone that is set for us by Dr. Luke. The first characteristic that I want you to see is that this was a worshiping community. It was a worshiping community. If you're taking notes, go ahead and jot that down. I want you to notice a couple things about this. And with each characteristic, since we're approaching this kind of like a Holy Spirit coaching session, I'm going to give you a barrier to it happening and a blessing to God empowering it, okay? So you can kind of think through it. The first part is this, that the scripture says that they, that being this early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
The worship that this church experienced was not random. In fact, most theologians would say that they had a functional liturgy. It's a word that we've been using here for the last couple years. A liturgy that they believed put them in a position to receive from the Spirit as they gave praise to God. Some of it happened randomly, but they planned for it to happen regularly. Some of it happened randomly, but they planned for it to happen regularly. How often? Day by day. Now when you look at how we plan to worship here at Damascus Road, there are several things that we do, candidly, not often day by day. But when we gather, we sing. And why do we sing? We sing to make space to worship God together. We read God's word together. Why? To make space to worship God together. We pray together. We take communion together. We give together. Giving is part of our liturgy. It's an act of worship when we pass the bucket. It might be awkward and uncomfortable, but it's an act of worship for us to not only do it, but to do it together. We give together as one body. And then we, we this is the old phrase, we pass the peace. Does anyone know what pass the peace is now? <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say something sweet. Now, what's going on when we do that? We are worshiping in this regard. The old idea, and I think it's still the true idea, is that this week I have received blessing and peace from God, and I plan to do what? Pass it. To who? Anyone who's around me. Now, we make that a little more casual, but that's, that's a part of our liturgy here. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm deeply encouraged. When I first came here, and we did pass the peace or say hey to your neighbor, it was like a 1.7 second experience. And now I can't shut you all up. And you know what that means? That means that we're growing as a worshiping community. We have a liturgy that we practice on a regular basis. And the reason that we do that is because the disciples had a liturgy that they practiced. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The other part that I want you to see is I'm going to let you know from a quote that I read. A guy by the name of Edmund Clowney said this. He said that the gospel is first a celebration before it can become a communication. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I have said on almost a weekly basis that the gospel is a message that has to be proclaimed. And so this is not to devalue that. But I do think that it's an important thing for us to understand that the gospel must first be celebrated corporately and individually before it's going to be communicated. In other words, it has to be good news. And I don't mean good news in a theological sense. I mean good news in an emotional sense that when we get together and have the opportunity to practice our liturgy, a celebration breaks out. And what we see is something that a guy by the name of Tim Keller says, he says that we need to be careful when we gather to not make two separate worship and evangelism. This is a really important point for us. Keller says that evangelistic worship, another worship that invites people who don't yet know Jesus in, is worship that sounds familiar to them. In other words, it's not from another decade, and it's not, it's not foreign to them. It's, it, it sounds normal to them. That's some of the reason why we do worship the way that we do, because we want to contextualize it. And the reason that we want to contextualize that is because the second thing is that it needs to be gospel-centered. In other words, it has to be about Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that we're worshiping. We're not worshiping an idea, we're worshiping a person. 
And so if somebody needs to come in and there needs to be a familiarity with a redirection of love to a person whose name is Jesus. And then lastly, it needs to be, and this is a big word, so I'll get it out of the way. It needs to be theophonic. Hello. Theophonic means a theophany. The presence of God has to be manifest. And so a worshiping community that's focused on reaching others has to sound familiar, point to Jesus, and invite the presence of God. This worshiping community occurred in Acts chapter 2. I believe that whenever the disciples started to speak in tongues, they were in wonder and awe speaking of Jesus, and that people heard and understood what they were saying. That's what tongues is. It was familiar to them. It was contextual to them. It pointed them to Jesus and it invited the presence of God into their hearts and minds. They were worshiping and the Spirit showed up and people who were otherwise not interested were invited into a relationship with God. The barriers then to this are, I think, twofold. And I think they're something that we always need to be aware of here at Damascus Road. The first barrier is a little bit easier for us because we're very non-traditional. But tradition is just something that's happened regularly in the past, right? It's not suit and ties. The first barrier to it is how we've always done it. Let me think of it this way. What if you came in on next Sunday and instead of Dan or Noah or Beth doing their thing, we had a, a symphony, and, uh, and it was a lot more quiet and a lot more chill. Some of you would say, praise the Lord Jesus, all right? <laughs> but would you be willing to make that transition if we believed and you believed that it would make more space to create familiarity so that people could be pointed to Jesus and God's presence could be invited? You see, every church has a tradition. This is how we've always done it. And people don't like that being messed with, and it's a barrier to being a truly worshiping community that invites others in. The second barrier is the preference of those present. Part of it's the past, and some of it's, this is just how we like it, man. You want to tick off a group of people, start changing things at an evangelical church. Trust me, I've tried it. <laughs> Yeah, people get really upset. Why are you doing I like it the way that it is. Now, I don't think that most of you are really consciously thinking about it that way. And that's part of the problem. Whenever you don't say, why do we do it the way that we do it? Is it in accordance with the values that we say that we hold to? We drift into preferences and traditions that are barriers to outsiders. I ought to be getting an amen right there. Yeah. Whenever we start saying, this is how we do it, what we're saying is, you're not invited. And whenever we start saying, this is how we like it, what are we doing? We're planning. We're planning to keep it the way that it is at the expense of anyone else who would come. But that's not the heart of God. And that's not what we see God doing to his people. Listen, I don't think that the disciples set out to speak in tongues. I think that God did that to them, and as he did it to them, he invited the nations to them. And so what we're saying is, God, we're coming to you with our preferences and with our traditions, and we're saying we put them before you to do with whatever you want, to reach whomever you want for your glory and their joy and our blessing. And if that means that you change everything at Damascus Road, we want to be a worshiping community. And we understand 
the, the good old times, the good old days, the preferences that we hold right now might in fact be barriers to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. What then is the blessing of being a worshiping community? The blessing is the opportunity for God to use any aspect of our liturgy to reach people. I would love to have someone say, during that past the whatever time, I feel like God spoke to me. During the reading of scripture, during communion, during the praise time, during the preaching time, I want everything that we do to be soaked with premium opportunity for the Holy Spirit to be at work. Because that's why we do this. To make space for the Holy Spirit to be at work, to ask him to be present, to ask him to be at work. And if we ever start doing it for any other reason, we ought to shut the doors. We ought to shut the doors. Now, all of us, of course, we have preferences. All of us have things that we like. All of us have things that we want to be a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with that until it starts to trump the mission and heart of God. And then it becomes idolatry. So this is a group of people who was a worshiping community. Number two, they were a learning community. Look at Acts 2 and verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to it. Anytime that you look down through scripture and you see an outbreaking of signs and wonders, it's always around new revelation. God doesn't just arbitrarily do things just off by themselves. He's saying something and he's validating what he's saying by signs and miraculous wonders. In Acts chapter 2, that's what we see. We see a new revelation. What's the new revelation? Or rather, who is the new revelation? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon his people and a sign breaks out. What's the sign? Speaking in tongues. And the reason is so that people not will look at the tongue speaker, but they'll look at the revelation. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is at work. And what the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he validates the message and the revelation, and then he begins to teach the revelation to his people. And the natural response of people who are wanting to be taught by the Holy Spirit is that they devote themselves to it. In other words, they have a practice, a rhythm, a discipline of learning. It's interesting to me that the disciples devoted themselves. And the reason I think that they devoted themselves to learning is because I don't think there's another way for you to do it. Let me ask you a question. You guys have heard lots of times this phrase, lifelong learner. Why do we distinguish that? Because there's an intentionality to it. And it distinguishes it in that if you aren't devoted to be a lifelong learner, you won't. Right? You won't. The disciples believed that God was speaking and that God was revealing. And they said, I want all of it. And so they put their lives, they put their calendar, they put their practices in a position to regularly learn. And I think that they learned in three ways. Number one, they learned what? Number two, they learned why. Number three, they learned how to share it. Now, lots of times when I run into good, solid, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving evangelicals, they're pretty good at the what? Pretty good. When you start to slide down toward the why and it gets a little more foggy, when you start to slide down the could you teach this, could you share it, could you articulate it, and then it gets downright scary. 
That's why a lot of us have a hard time articulating our faith, because we know the what, we're a little shaky on the why, and the idea of sharing it scares us to death. That's exactly why the disciples devoted themselves to learning, so that they could know what, so they could know why, in the understanding that the mission of God required normal people to know him and there was no plan B. It's what Peter says later in his epistle. He says, be ready to give an answer of the hope that's in you. How, how do you get ready to give an answer? You learn. You study. And how do you do that? You make space for it to happen on a regular basis. So let me ask you a question. If I looked at your time, would I see a plan for reading and listening and learning? I don't say this to dog you. I don't say it to make you guilty or condemn you. But I do say it to help us think through this reality that if you don't have a plan, you probably aren't regularly learning. And if I'm not regularly learning, I'm not often ready. And what it reveals is a misunderstanding about the plan of God. The plan of God, this is where we started, has always been to use normal people to reach the lost and build his kingdom. That's the plan. And so the disciples, understanding that, said, we are going to be completely as ready as we can by learning so that we can give the gospel whenever uh, whenever we're given the opportunity. Now, what, what's some barriers to this? Uh, I, think, I think the biggest one, guys, honestly, is just a lack of persistence. I mean, the idea of lifelong learning, it just sounds tiring, doesn't it? <laughs> like, the rest of my life? And I've heard, like, I don't like to read, I don't like to, I've heard all that. I've heard all of it. Uh, but the, the reality of it is, is that learning is a value, and it's a value that takes persistence and discipline and the belief that God will teach me from anyone, anytime, any place, anyhow. Learning is just more of a posture than anything. And the reality of it is I can, I can learn from a PhD in, in, in Semitic languages or from a, from a whatever the opposite of that is, I don't know. You ought to be able to learn from anyone. And here's the second barrier. If you can't do that, it's just simply pride. Part of the reason that we're not learners is because we don't think that we need to. <laughs> we don't think that we need to. But the mission of God is so grand, the, the plan of God is so grand, and the necessity of normal people like you and I are so integral that we have to be a learning community. We have to be a learning community. And what's the blessing to that? It's the opportunity to be used by God. It's the blessing. It's the opportunity to say, I was just reading that, and then I had that opportunity. And to see the inner workings of the sovereignty of God in our daily lives. I don't know if you ever had that opportunity. You're just praying about something. You're just thinking about something. You just had a conversation. And a week later, God's like, boom, use it. That's a blessing to, to understand the transcendent call of God on our lives through his Holy Spirit. And a Christian is just somebody who says, I'm going to devote myself to being as ready as I can possibly be through any means necessary. I'm going to be persistent and I'm going to be humble. And I'm going to say, if you want to teach me, I want to learn. Number three is fellowship. Number one is worship. Number two is learning. Number three is fellowship. Look at Acts 2 and verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. I'm reading a book right now that I want you to jot down. I want you to, uh, to pick it up. It's been really, really good for me. It's called The Relational Soul. It's by a guy named Jim Cofield. And in that book, Jim says that God designed our souls to be permeable. In other words, he gives us the capacity to internalize the lives of others. God built your soul to be able to receive the influence of somebody else. Thomas Merton says it this way. He says, we, live, we learn to live by living with others and living like them. And this is a process that has disadvantages and blessings. <laughs> Honest. Honest. Let me say it to you this way. As much as I just harped on this idea of learning, there are some things that you can't learn by reading a book or spending time in solitude. You have to be with somebody else. Have to be. And that's the way that God made it. That's the way that God built it. That's the way that God intended it. And that's why the disciples listened to it not thought it was important. Not talked about it on Sundays when the pastor was going through the values. What's it say? Devoted themselves to it. Another way to say that it was, it was part of their devotion. And what that means is that they regularly worked on it. They regularly worked on it. How often? Day by day. day, by day day by day. You understand that in order to have true gospel community, it has to be a daily devotion. Listen, I, I love you, but it frustrates me to no end when I hear people say, I don't have any connection, but they don't make any space for it. Cool, tell me about your week. And it's like, it's like, it's just going to happen out of the, 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 the out of nothing. People are going to love me deeply. I'm going to trust them deeply. We're going to have deep, honest, spiritual, confessional conversation. When would you do that? I'm super busy, man. Devoted to this. This is the reason that we harp so much on community groups. Listen, it's not a perfect model. It's actually can be kind of a, kind of a hood model sometimes. I get that. I get that it's hard. I get that we're not in the practice. I get that it's awkward but I also get that we see in the early church a devotion to it. I want you to think of it this way. This is something that I feel like God's bringing me through right now. The inability, I'm going to read this, the inability to experience peaceful, trusting, prioritized community should raise flags about the health of my soul. I want you to think about it this way. If, if any time I spend time with people, I get my feelings hurt or I get angry, or I hurt somebody's feelings and they get angry, that should raise a flag to you about the health of your soul. If I have a hard time trusting people or people have a hard time trusting me, that should raise some flags about your soul. And here's another one. If you have a very hard time prioritizing people, that should raise flags about the health of your soul. Because there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Why? Because we make space for the things we want to make space for. You want me to prove it to you? You're going to spend three hours watching guys with shoulder pads and bricks on their head throw a leather oval this afternoon. You're going to make time for it. What's that called? Devotion. In every sense. 
No offense, Packers fans. I'm a Browns fan, so it helps my idolatry. My God is so broken, right? <laughs> my God's so broken and inadequate, just sends me back to Jesus. Really? Johnny Manziel? Okay, anyways. Yeah, devotion to it. They didn't believe that this just simply and naturally occurred. And listen, if you find yourself having a hard time in community, it should raise a flag about the health of your soul. So what are some of the barriers that we have? I think there's two. One is just we don't, it's not high on our priority list. Community is not high on our priority list. We try to smush it in, right? Through all the other things that we have going on. Oh, I can fit you in between 12... 03 and 1237 uh, in seven months. Now listen, I know that we're busy, but at a certain point, that pattern begins to show values day by day. So the first barrier to it is priorities. The second barrier to it is wounds. 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 (laughs) How we react to what has happened to us in our past creates a framework with which we evaluate future relationships. I have three coaches. One of them is actually the guy that I just referenced. Uh, By God's grace, I got connected to him. And uh, he says it to me this way. You, uh, the things that you don't know about yourself are the things that control you. And the only way to know yourself is to know your story. And so he makes me tell him my story and I hate it. Why? For the same reason you do, because it's painful. And you know what that does? It creates a reaction in my heart. It creates an evaluation in my heart of perspective community in the future. I know how this is going to go, man. I've been here. And certain triggers and certain things happen. And so we say, we're going to do community groups at Damascus Road. And do you know what I heard over and over and over again? We've done that. It didn't work. I didn't like it. What are you doing? You got a framework in which you evaluate that represents some distrust, that represents, listen, some some brokenness in your soul and in mine. And so wounds, unredeemed, unaddressed, unknown, unconfessed, are barriers to community. The blessing is to receive the leading The healing, the redemption of God at the hands of another normal person or abnormal person. Listen, the opportunity to be ministered to somebody that maybe you didn't expect. And maybe you didn't think they could. Maybe you didn't think they would. Maybe you didn't think they cared. And then find out that God is using them as a medium of grace in your life. That's an enormous, enormous blessing. But the only way that it happens is if you trust God to be greater than your wounds. And that's incredibly difficult. Incredibly, incredibly difficult. But God built our souls to be permeable, to be able to receive the lives of others. And as Merton says, the only way that I learn to live is by learning to live with and like others. And this church was defined by fellowship because they devoted themselves to it. Number four, are you good? Number four is it was a witnessing community. Now, whenever I say the word witnessing, you think of going to a coffee shop and sitting down and giving somebody the gospel. That's not actually what it was in the early church. What we see is that mission began in the church before it began outside of the church. In other words, 
In Acts chapter 2, we don't see they had a great website, a crazy social media plan, an awesome missions pastor, and lots of outreach plans. Here's what you see. They loved and took care of one another. And people were attracted to that. Can I tell you something? I still think that people are attracted to that. Because people get used and abused and hurt and have needs that are disregarded on such a regular basis. And we try to fill it with pursuits and with politics and this next philosophy, this next policy, this next candidate. And at this point, it's just like, I'm done, man. I'm done. I think that a church who truly witnesses to one another is still an incredible, incredibly attractive thing. To this extent, I think that it... I think that a church that doesn't care for one another shouldn't talk about it outside. I don't think that, I don't think if it can be true for Nolan and I, I shouldn't be talking about it at the coffee shop. Now, I obviously say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but if we have this huge disparity between our words and our deeds, what fills that is hypocrisy. And God's not gonna, not not gonna bless an inauthentic witness. And so this was a group of people who, who their witness was they knew one another, they cared for one another, they loved one another. And I also want you to see this, guys. This is a movement that began out of the church and that when people were added to it, they came into the church. The church is the center of the plan of God in this day and age. Now there are other people who love God and other people who are doing church work But the church has to be the brightest light. And the brightest light happens when you don't go to church, when you are the church, and when people come to the church, they're loved and received and cared for and known and witnessed to a witness of the grace of God, a witness of the mercy of God, a witness of the love of God that happens from people just like you and I, and there is no plan B, and it happens how often? Day by day day by day. And what's the barrier to this? Now, all of these are just my opinion, but I think the barrier is just apathy. Just, man, dude, I got my own stuff. I got time to worry about yours. I, I, got, I got stuff going on. I got hurts. I got wounds. I got this. I got that. I just need to come and get and leave. And this apathy that, that makes us... Uh, commitment averse, right? Just, ah, I don't know. And remember how we started that, that Jesus seemed to believe in entrusting to the Gospels that anyone who understood who he was would have an apathy-proof faith. Man, you want a witnessing community, apathy will kill that right now. And what's the blessing to this? It's the, it's the opportunity to see God be at work in here with people that we know and spill out onto people that we don't. Your first witness should be to me and mine to you. And if I can't love you well, we have a problem. If I can't prioritize you, if I can't care for you, if I can't know you well, then should I go to a coffee shop, sit down and say, let me tell you about the love of Jesus. This is a witnessing community and their real care and real love for one another day by day was attractive. Lastly, 
lastly, was they were a serving community. They were a serving community. Now, we talk about service a lot, and I was thinking, and I was praying about this, and I want to I strip all the negative connotation out of this, <clears throat> not because it's necessarily more helpful, but because I just want it to be better understood. Serving is very simply a value of sharing. It's what it is. And so when we say, hey, we need more volunteers at whatever, we're just asking you to share yourself. That's what it is. We're asking you to take your time and your abilities and your perspective and share them with us. And vice versa. And what do you see about this church in the book of Acts? That they had all things, what? In common. They had all things in common. What did they do? They served one another. They did, no, they just shared. They believed that, that their gifts were your gifts, that their time was your time, that your perspective was their perspective, and they preferred one another. And because of that, they served one another. Now, what is a barrier to sharing? Consuming. Consuming. Now, that, listen, there are some of you who are coming to this church and you are in a season that you need to just consume. You just need to be loved on. You just need to be cared for. You just need to have a safe place to recalibrate and to, to have the Holy Spirit do work in your life. And we're thrilled that you're here. Thrilled that you're here. Don't want you to go anywhere else unless you absolutely want to. All right? But there are some of you. You've been here a long time. And you're still asking, what's in it for you? And this is, a, this is at an epidemic level in the Western church. What about me? What about my connection? What about my being served? What about my preferences? What about my time? What about, what about? What about? A gospel church is a sharing church. And part of our witness is the willingness to share rather than receive. Now what's the blessing? The blessing is that you can't outgive God. Man, if that doesn't sound like preacher talk, I don't know what does. Right? That's a terrifying idea, isn't it? It's an absolutely terrifying idea to test the theory that you can't outgive God. Now, I'm not saying if you give God $2, he'll give you 4 That's called heresy. Okay? I am saying God is more generous than you. God knows your needs. God calls you to have a value of sharing. How often? Day by day. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bless those who seek to bless others. Every story that I have in my life of God being faithful, I can connect directly to some belief that he will be. When my wife and I first got married, I had a severe scarcity mindset. I grew up in a single parent home. We were not wealthy. <laughs> and, uh, and I grew up legalistic and I didn't have a belief that God was more generous than I could ever imagine, that I couldn't ever outgive him. And I can tell you, my wife and I have been married 12 and a half years. There has never been a time that I have said to my wife, should we give, that she has said anything but yes. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, there have been times that I've been, I've been like, this is the time. It happened a couple months ago. Should we do this? And she goes, yeah. 
you are super hot. <laughs> it's amazing. She's discipled me. She's, I've learned from her to share. To share. And I, I've been blessed by her, and I've been blessed to see God um, provide for us. And so, listen, this is, this is how this works. A witnessing church, a fellowshipping church, a learning church, a worshiping church who intends to share, I share with Nolan, and what happens? Jackie shares with me. And that's why this is a church who had its needs met. This is also why it's important for you to understand that the health of you goes directly to the health of us. Because if I share with Jackie and then Nolan says, I ain't sharing, what happens? Yeah. And so as we are developing membership and trying to see God instill values, that's why we're saying we need you to share. Because we have a witness, because there is no plan B, because our souls are permeable, because we can only learn from one another in specific ways, and because all of it is a liturgy of worship. And I want you to note something really interesting about this. How often did they do this? Day by day. I want you to look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number. Look at that. A church that had people in it who believed that their faith happened Monday through Sunday had God bless them Monday through Sunday. It might just be, this is just off the top of my bald head, uh, it might just be that if the church only tries to do these things on Sundays, we're only giving God the space to do one-seventh of what he wants to do. I'm just saying. That whole day-by-day -day thing, they didn't try to figure out how to make it work. It was who they were. Now, here's what I want to do, and we'll be done. A couple months ago, my wife and I went to a conference together, and... Uh, in the middle of it, they started this whole, like, God has something to say to us and all that, you know, that I've said a hundred times. But then the guy said this. Um, he said, I'm, I want to give you some space. I want you to ask God to put thoughts in your head that could only be from him. And that was so simple and so accessible that it stuck with me. And I've, I've tried to incorporate it into my prayer life. God, say to me what only you can say to me. I started this time out and I said, I think that God has a certain kind of church that he wants us to make, and some of that is about you, and some of that is about us. And so I want to give you a couple minutes to just say, all right, God, I'm listening so that I can learn. Put thoughts in my head that are only from you. I want to give you a couple minutes to hear what maybe are some barriers that are keeping you from, some blessing that he has for you, and some things that when you look around DR, you say, we're experiencing that barrier right now, and I think that God would have us do this, and we want to know that. So I want to give you a couple minutes to just hear from God, and then I'm going to pray, and we will sing together. Why don't you take that time? God, we uh, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for, um, for prayer. We know that the disciples devoted themselves to it in Acts 1, and that your spirit showed up, and that's what I pray. Uh, 
that's happening right now, that you're, you're speaking to us, your people, individually or corporately. You're speaking words of grace, maybe words of challenge, showing yourself strong on our behalf, God. But we just pray, God, that as we go into this time of praise, as we consider the Lord's Supper, as we pray continuing together, that your spirit will permeate, and your presence will be made known we'll be invited into relationship with you, God, and that you'll create a sense of gratitude and awe um, in us for you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name.